Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. My name is Leslie Lamb, and I'm the host and producer of the Crypto Unstacked podcast. And I'm here today guest hosting on Real Vision. Today, I am joined by Hauk Lee, co-founder of Trinity Investments. Trinity Investments is one of the top 15 family offices globally by permanent capital size. And they're one of the first North Asia-based family offices to actively deploy capital in digital assets uh, starting from 2017. And Hoke, I have to say, I don't get a lot of cold outreach from family offices uh, <laughs> to hop on the podcast. So when you did, it really took me by surprise. And I'm so glad we we're doing this today. Yeah, glad to be here, Leslie, and share my thoughts on this exciting space. So before we dive into the world of family offices, would love for you to tell us about your coming to crypto story. Okay, so basically, in my professional career, I've been uh, on the investment side as an asset manager. Before investing in crypto, when I established Trinity with the backing of my uh, principal uh, billionaire investor, uh, we were investing primarily in uh, residential real estate, in emerging markets and frontier markets, as well as uh, mostly in art. Uh, we shied away from kind of the tradi traditional 60-40 formula. We stayed uh, as far as away we could from uh, instruments like fixed income, just because we didn't think that would uh, provide kind of the uh, wealth uh, accumulation or even preservation, uh, if you will. So I think starting from uh, 2014, 2015, uh, every time that I had informal meetings with uh, the heads of the Southeast Asian uh, family offices, I, I was just struck by how, uh, how they viewed digital assets, particularly Bitcoin at that time, you know, kind of the portability of that asset, as well as the verifiability of that asset. They, to me, were, were kind of the inspiration of uh, how this uh, asset could really uh, be a, a great fit towards a family office that really didn't need to uh, invest during a, an investment cycle or have kind of a limited time frame in terms of uh, you know, investing and exiting their investments. I think internally we made a decision, okay, well, let, let's start deploying capital once uh, the total market cap of digital assets assets uh, hits above $10 billion, which prov would provide enough liquidity for us to uh, start having a meaningful position. And so that time came kind of towards the end of uh, 2016, early 2017. So, you know, I got myself ready uh, studying for about a year, talking to a lot of people in the space, you know, in terms of how to play this market. So, you know, we first started deploying capital in 2017, uh, primarily in Bitcoin. And fast forward five years through trial and error, developed kind of a more uh, broad-based approach and a separate unit for uh, managing our digital asset class. What's the story behind the permanent capital that you guys were able to mass over the years? Right. So we started out in uh, early 2000s. We focused basically on two uh, investment classes. One was residential real estate uh, in emerging markets and frontier markets. And obviously, uh, back then, before the age of uh, Bitcoin, if you got the countries right at a macro level, they provide the uh, great tailwinds for the uh, land prices to uh, give you that exponential return, in addition to the uh, current uh, rental income that you could generate, uh, which is a great way to compound our growth. And then on the other uh, end, there's art. And uh, you know, if, you, if you're able to go to auctions and amass a 
a collection of, of hard asset in uh, a collection that's desired in 10, 15 years, that, that's also going to provide you with the exponential growth in terms of the value. So those have kind of been the true uh, drivers of our permanent capital uh, increase before we uh, started uh, investing in uh, digital assets in 2017. So what's really interesting that came out of the conversation we had prior to this interview was the question of, you know, why aren't family offices, especially the multi-generational families, um, you know, why aren't they typically first movers when it comes to investing in new industries? So not just crypto, but other types of industries as well, more broadly speaking, technology. Okay, well, I think I have to kind of break that down geographically and as well as kind of the, the, you know, whether, at what stage is that wealth? Is that old money versus new money, right? So geographically, if you have the North American family offices, the European family offices, and then, you know, kind of the Asian family offices, you have three broad uh, clusters. And within kind of the three clusters, you'd have, uh, you know, is it kind of first generational money or is it like, you know, fourth generation? So within kind of these different bucket pools of capital, there's going to be uh, biases and prejudices and uh, partiality towards uh, kind of different asset classes. Um, You know, if it's an old European family in their fourth generation, for them, it's probably going to be about uh, wealth uh, preservation. And they're probably going to be, you know, more inclined towards a kind of a conservative approach, the generally 60-40 approach towards asset management versus kind of on the other uh, end of the spectrum. If it's a first generation U.S. tech billionaire family office, then they probably would be very uh, uh, open towards, you know, trying to invest in the next unicorn, a decacorn and so forth. So I think a lot to do has kind of... uh, the, the principles of that family office, what, what is the origins of their wealth? And so that, I think, would dictate a lot of the uh, investment philosophy behind uh, how the family investment offices, how that particular family investment office uh, goes about doing business. For example, when I referenced the uh, Southeast family, uh, Southeast Asia family offices that I talked about, uh, that I was inspired by, those family offices, their operating companies have tended to be overseas Chinese founders and the operating companies would be, you know, doing business in, uh, in more, uh, less stable geopolitical environments. So they, they would have kind of more uh, open mind towards, you know, how pragmatic and how useful a certain asset it is towards meeting their requirements versus kind of a more uh, conservative third generation or fourth generation European uh, family investment office. So I think that that's kind of um, the ends of the spectrum that you can't really generalize. So, you know, their uh, culture will tend to be more focused on uh, something re- uh, that has a real use case and something that's pragmatic. And so, you know, digital assets is something that uh, gives them that in terms of the port- uh, portability. If there's a rest or turmoil and they need to get go somewhere you know, on their private jets with uh, different passports, <laughs> that it's just tailor-made uh, for their needs. If you contrast that with uh, kind of a very conservative uh, third-generation old money European family investment office, then the investment manager of that family office is going to be less uh, inclined to uh, stick their neck out and uh, try to dabble their feet in uh, the latest tech stock 
with a, you know, or, or an emerging investment class. So that, that's, I think that's why you can't really uh, lump uh, them all together because they're coming in with uh, different biases and different cultures and approaches at looking at uh, different investment classes. Yeah, there was a statistic from a 2021 Global Family Office report that said about 19% of family offices in the APAC region uh, actually deployed capital into crypto. But what's interesting is that more than half of the family offices in the region were interested, right? So there's that mismatch in numbers there. It's, it's, it's been a few months since this report was released, but do you see that number growing significantly within the APAC region for this year? Yes, well, not only for the APAC region, but if you, uh, if you believe the surveys, the annual surveys uh, from uh, the big financial institutions, for North America, I think the numbers were even higher. A third of them uh, said that you know they deployed uh, you know less than one percent of their asset in uh, digital assets. You know that th- that's one thing for them to have bought a few Bitcoin or for them to have bought a few ETH, because when you look at a family office and it's you know uh, about a billion of uh, of permanent capital or below, the the uh, the investment manager doesn't really have the bandwidth to kind of dig deeper and try to optimize. Uh, the returns on that digital asset, nor do they have the bandwidth to kind of understand the vast uh, digital assets ecosystem. Uh, so th- th- that kind of remains to be a challenge. You know, the, the incentives compensation uh, structure for a family, typical small family office is not structured for them to, you know, uh, take risks. You know, I mean, no, no one, they're not going to get, they're not going to lose their jobs for, you know, investing in uh, Google or you know, Amazon. But they might, uh, you know, be questioned by their principal of why they invested in, uh, you know, in emerging, uh, you know, uh, the next Ethereum player, player one, for example, um, especially if that if that happened in a volatile period. Yeah, just a moment ago, you mentioned the word tailor-made. You said that this asset class is tailor or custom-made for family offices. And I think that's just such an interesting and unique way to describe how the two worlds fit together because it's it's not it's not the first thing you think about when it's like crypto and family offices there is that dichotomy uh, in in ideology yeah I think the reason why I say that is because when you're basically managing permanent capital uh, it's not committed capital so there's no timeline associated with it you know you don't you don't have three or four years kind of like a fund to invest and then another you know four or five years to exit that investment and maximize your returns you know you you're talking about 10 you know, 50 years, you're, you're talking about literally, you know, the, the, the grandchildren of the, the principals uh, of the family office. So in that respect, digital assets is something that requires very minimal annual maintenance cost. You know, all you really need to do is, uh, you know, if you're not going to ha- store the private keys yourself, you know, just pay the custodial fees for uh, your digital assets. Or if you are, you know, just uh, make sure that the wallets are functional. So, you know, in that respect, very, very uh, convenient to kind of divvy up which grandchildren gets what, how much percent, um, as well as, uh, as I said, the low maintenance cost. And I, just, I guess I just want to circle back to what you said about, uh, you know, the, the interest amongst the family offices in the Asia region, as well as uh, the uh, North America uh, family offices survey, where uh, a third have, uh, have said they've invested less than 1%. So I think they're dabbling their feet. 
Um, and uh, I think it's going to increase, uh, you know, but but a lot, a lot of, as I said, a lot of these uh, family offices, they, they need a lot of handholding because uh, even seasoned uh, uh, investors in this space, you know, there's new, uh, new uh, protocols, new uh, tokens uh, that are coming up. So, you know, even the seasoned investors uh, need to, uh, you know, really monitor and learn 24 seven. So, you know, after, as I said, they made their uh, initial investment in Bitcoin and ETH, which is kind of like the get, gateway uh, uh, token or coin, uh, you know, they, they, they just need they, they just need to uh, study more and, you know, find out more about kind of the uh, yield farming, find out more about other stuff they can do um, in terms of playing this market. So I think it's going to increase overall. And I can share with you uh, kind of uh, on an anecdotal basis. One of my classmates uh, manages the family office of one of the largest uh, European uh, investment offices. And, uh, you know, it's very, very conservative uh, in culture, third generation. And, you know, I kind of got him hooked on into dabbling into, uh, into digital assets. So they, they invested in uh, Bitcoin uh, 2019. And at the annual review, the, the matriarch and the patriarch of the family, you know, looked at the returns. And when they saw that, you know, that this uh, uh, investment in Bitcoin and ETH uh, yielded, you know, on average 45 percent, they thought that, you know, this had uh, another uh, another zero to it because they're, you know, they're usually usually used, uh, used to getting four or five percent you know, on fixed income or something, uh, uh, you know, that, that they've been doing uh, for years and years. So. They, they immediately told them, hey, you know what? Forget about fixed income. And uh, I want you to increase this from 1% to 5% next, you know, three to five years. So the dilemma for him is how do I put all this money to work, right? Because there's a limitation. You, you can't just go on to a centralized exchange and put a limit order and uh, green thumb it, right? Heavy thumb it. So, uh, you know, that, that, that's another dilemma that they have. You know, how do I do it? How do, you know, because there's only so much OTC or block deals you can do in terms of uh, putting that money to work. And I think one of the frustrations why, why the retail investor doesn't see this, you know, explosion in price with all the institutional adoption, family offices, pension funds, not to mention kind of the, the, the endowments that have yet to still make, you know, make a meaningful investment uh, in this space, as well as sovereign wealth funds. Um, is because it, you know, it, it, it not only takes time, but if you have that allocation, you need time because, you know, they're, they're smart. They're not going to uh, do anything to kind of, because of the liquidity of Bitcoin with less than what I, I think latest was 11% of total uh, of uh, available uh, Bitcoin are available on the uh, exchanges. So they're going to scale in very gradually, very slowly. You know, they're going to use bots. They're going to reach out to all different market makers to slowly accumulate uh, prices to their favor. But it's happening. And, uh, you know, it's going to be a very slow snowball effect. As long as Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other digital assets uh, year on year provide superior returns to fixed income, securities, what have you, then it's ine inevitable. So does crypto fall under the growth mandate? Again, I think, you know, when they're doing their year-end uh, review, it, it's just all about results, financial results. You know, digital assets, I, I'd venture to say, 
for the more kind of conservative family offices, it might shift them from being kind of wealth preservation mode into more of a wealth uh, accumulation mode. You know, if, if we're kind of getting the, uh, the annual returns that, you know, we've seen, I mean, last year, if at a certain point, you know, it would have been the same price depending on when you bought your Bitcoin, you know, 41K, 41K, 44K, 44K. So maybe not a lot of excitement there, but still, uh, you know, if, if they've been here and they've seen kind of the returns, it, it, uh, there's more alpha than uh, fixed income or other security baskets that they bought, then yes, I, I think, you know, with inflation and uh, debasement of the currency, it's inevitable. There is no other investment class. It's a function of what you can invest in. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, what typically draws family offices over the line, right? Those who have gone into conversations with you for months, if not years. What typically is that thing that brings them over? I think it's a different conversation. If it's a one or two person family office and, you know, managing less than a billion dollars, it's going to be probably their advisor, their private bankers that, you know, might hand them a research report that may educate them. It may be the sons or the grandsons of the principals of the family office, you know, saying, hey, you know, we should, why aren't we, you know, getting into digital assets? And I've seen that, you know, cases of that happen where the sons or the grandsons, you know, uh, push them to kind of experiment and, you know, buy kind of the gateway Bitcoin or the Ethereum. Well, let's dig into how Trinity Investments uh, is structured to manage your crypto portfolio, right? Every family office, as you've already mentioned, will do things a little bit differently, not only based on their mandate and, you know, their wealth generation, but, uh, you know, we'll have different people handholding them through that process. So of course, the crypto portfolio is going to look a little bit different. Uh, so talk a bit more about how you guys are structured. So, um, you know, I talked about a smaller, a billion dollar size family office or one with one or two uh, dedicated uh, manager. I think if you go above five to 10 billion, 15 billion, then you have kind of the bandwidth and the resources and you can hire the dedicated personnel to really dig deep and uh, kind of develop a strategy of how you uh, are going to deploy capital and play this market. For us from 2017, uh, for the past five years plus, through trial and error, um, you know, we, we kind of have a four-prong approach in terms of, uh, of uh, investing in digital assets. First is obviously going to be kind of the uh, HODL portfolio, for lack of a better word. It's going to be our investment in uh, Bitcoin and in e Ethereum. And in Ethereum, um, what we did was uh, we just are running validator nodes ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, that's, gonna, that's providing us uh, kind of a dividend yield you know, 5% right now. And hopefully with the, uh, after the merge, you know, that could conceivably uh, go up uh, three times to 15, 17%. Um, if you uh, look at any of the latest uh, projections. So, you know, th that, that's the Ethereum on Bitcoin. Unfortunately, there's still not a lot you can do in terms of uh, getting yields, but you know, that, that's something we're never going to touch. We may, we may use that to uh, borrow against, but uh, that's kind of the HODL uh, prong. The second prong is kind of the uh, trading prong. And the uh, reason why we're trading uh, kind of the, uh, the, you know, last year we traded a lot of the layer, the alternative layer one uh, assets is that it helps us kind of being on the forefront in the battleground of understanding kind of the ever shifting narrative, as well as uh, the monthly uh, monetary flows, you know, you know, who's putting in what money. So, we, we, use, we use that trading portfolio and 
any money that we make from profits, the profits that we generate from that trading uh, prong, then we kind of uh, siphon that off and dedicate that to our third prong, which is kind of our R&D, our uh, university, if you will. And there, what we're trying to understand is, you know, what, what can we do in terms of uh, understanding, uh, uh, you know, what the late, latest and greatest in, uh, in getting yield is in DeFi? You know, what, what's this GameFi all about? You know, what's the NFTs? You know, should we be buying just like the board apes and the uh, CryptoPunks? And will they be the next, you know, Monet's and Picasso's and Van Gogh's? That's going to give us, uh, you know, exponential uh, growth and value in the next uh, 10, 15 years. Um, and I think doing that kind of gives us a sense for understanding, okay, so for like uh, a given a layer one protocol, how advanced is the financial engineering? You know, how, how, how do we judge and rate the, the potential of the brain power behind the, the financial engineering of that layer one? Because you can see the financial engineering that goes on, as you know, Leslie, is just incredible. I think nothing that Wall Street can match in terms of rehypothetical, you know, kind of this, you know, degening and the, the lending and then lending and the lending and going around and, and kind of the, uh, you know, incredible uh, the uh, APYs uh, that you can earn. The second thing that gives us an understanding and an insight to is, you know, how, how thoughtful is the tokenomics? Are, are the are the develop, are the founders really kind of uh, trying to do a, a fast rope pull, or are they really about kind of growing this ecosystem and uh, you know putting uh, the community more at the forefront? So th that's kind of the third prong in terms of uh, our university, if you will, uh, that lets us kind of be uh, in the forefront and really understand because. Because no matter how many research reports or how many analysts uh, you know we talk to, if we're not there rolling up our sleeves and really getting our hands dirty in terms of interacting with the protocol and the wallet and whatnot, then you know we don't have a field. We can't really develop our own uh, thesis for uh, whether this will be, uh, you know, how 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 what's the market capital that this particular uh, token will be in five ten years. And the fourth prong is really kind of. Uh, more our advisory slash technical assistance. And it's kind of, that's kind of a way for us to give back because when I started out in 2017, you know, there, we, there were no research reports that I, you know, a lot of times I made so much mistakes because I didn't, you know, uh, there, there was not some sage that could, uh, that could guide me. And a lot of times uh, I ended up uh, hiring a lot of the uh, STEM uh, students or graduates from uh, colleges that, that, that were just more digitally native and so, you know, they helped me. And even uh, when I reach out to, uh, to, to other people on a new protocol on Discord, you know, know that no matter if they're just starting or if they're rich, you know, the, 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 the willingness to share knowledge is, is something that you don't really see in the kind of sharper elbows side of uh, different uh, areas of finance. So, you know, the more, you know, family offices or people of influence and, and endowments that we can onboard and help deploy capital, you know, we're just making the pie bigger. So, you know, we get a lot of, uh, that's kind of our community volunteer service, if you will, that uh, I actually enjoy the most doing. Yeah, I, I love how well thought out the the structure of the team is. And I think that is helped by having a lot of talent um, that has come on board to, you know, help make these decisions internally, right, about what to invest in, how to invest, when to invest. Um, 
as you mentioned, it takes time. It takes patience, of course. Uh, you know, not everyone can stomach the different market cycles that crypto has experienced already. Um, and it also takes experimentation, as you say. And I love that you have this university portfolio, right, to test out different uh, protocols and, and apps on those protocols. And one question I think a lot of family offices, you know, who are tuning in today would have is, look, Trinity Investments has had history looking at real estate, looking at art as an asset class. How do you think about valuing tokens compared to businesses, right? Equity businesses or these other asset classes that you have, you know, a lot of experience valuing? I think it's tremendously difficult because, uh, you know, if you recall back to the dot-com era, they, they kind of had the uh, same struggles when the investment banks were trying to value a, a certain dot-com business for an IPO. You know, they used the eyeball metric, right? Which is something very new. You know, how many uh, people are viewing these pages? And for a lot of the different tokens, same thing. Um, I think the first we'll get that we'll get to see in terms of uh, valuing through a traditional finance lens uh, in terms of discounted cash flow basis is uh, Ethereum. You know, once uh, once the merge after the merge happens, then you can see kind of the cash flow flowing back to the stakeholders. And, you know, there's there's no overhead as a stakeholder like versus a traditional business. And so, you know, you could argue you could value the, the, the cash flows you get as a as a uh, as a stakeholder in Ethereum uh, through kind of that uh, cash flow lens. Um, so I think it's very difficult for a new protocol. Um, you know, one metric maybe you know, kind of seeing the uh, the wallet number of wallet addresses, you know, the rate of adoption, the traditional uh, total value locked in in a, in a protocol, but but it's still early these metrics, right? Because uh, you know, some so, add into that would be kind of you know, oh, socially on social media, how much of a buzz does that token have, and that factors into the valuation. So. You know, I, I, I don't think there is a simple oh, kind of uh, one, one uh, formula fits all. Um, so you kind of have to take it all together. It's kind of my feeling right now in 2022. And you can't forget, what is the meme value of a token, right? That, exactly. That sometimes exactly. is also uh, top of exactly. mind for a lot of investors. I mean, you mentioned this word thesis a few times now. What is your thesis for where the crypto space is going? Understanding that we're sort of in a market correction right now, what does the year ahead look like? I think just speaking outside of family office, for an institutional investor, unless your mandate is to just deploy the capital in a specific sector, quite honestly, I don't think there is, it's a function of what's available, you know, what's available to invest in, right? And, you know, I understand that uh, a lot of the retail investors, you know, um, we didn't hit 100K end of last year. You know, a lot of people, these so-called experts have said, hey, you know, there's this wall of institutional money that's going to come. They're going to drive up the prices. It's going to create the FOMOs of mother of all FOMOs. But I think we're seeing that happen because the floor price of after every major drawdown is increasing, you know, from 29 last year. 33 recently, and it's it's increasing, and it's increasing because the the institutional investors they're 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 not dumb either. They're, they know at what price they want to get into and scale into and layer into, and so the the support price to me 
keeps on increasing. That's a very positive sign. That that's a very that that's a very good indicator that there is this institutional demand, you know, that that keeps on uh, on rising. And so, you know, maybe if we do get the pump later on this year, or after the merge, or after you know whatever uh, tail one provides it, you know, maybe after we hit a certain price, maybe this time it'll the the the, the floor will be fifty k. So it's ever increasing. And uh, you know, last year. The one metric that I'm paying very close attention to is the uh, availability of uh, Bitcoin on exchanges. Mm. And, you know, last year, I think we, we went from maybe 14%. Now it's at like 10.7. And Leslie, I have to tell you, I think once that decreases below 10, amongst people like us that don't have uh, enough uh, of these digital assets, that's going to create uh, you know, mother of all FOMOs, mm. because then it's no longer about, oh, let's wait, let's buy, let's scale in, let's do the Michael Saylor, you know, very slow, stealthy. So it doesn't take much. You know, it doesn't take much to move the prices up. Right. So I, I think in that respect, people should be uh, very uh, bullish. So earlier in the conversation, you brought up this interesting observation about the balance between wealth generation and wealth preservation. And top of mind, people are asking, you know, what does that look like for today's family offices uh, that are being led by the third generation or even the fourth generation, right? What do the young guys, so to say, right? What do they care about right now when they have in the back of their mind the understanding that there is a mandate and there is this responsibility to the wealth that has been generated over generations. So what do they care about and how are they speaking with you? Maybe this is part of the advisory part of the business, right? Uh, what, what questions are they asking you? So when we're comparing notes and through our informal uh, uh, gatherings, um, it, it, it's really two sides. You would think that the uh, millennials and the Generation Z would be more uh, inclined to uh, really jump in and be all in in digital assets. But there are a lot of uh, European family offices, third generation, fourth generation, that are as conservative as their parents or grandparents are, you know? And still saying, hey, this is unproven. It still needs a longer track record. You know, I, I want to wait until it hits, Bitcoin at least hits 5 trillion in market cap before I can save, safely go in. And you'd be surprised, you know, these are people in their 20s saying that versus you know, uh, you know, I'm not saying that that's the majority, but there are still maybe 20% out there that still have kind of that, oh, you know, um, maybe it's just through fixed income that we're just going to uh, preserve our wealth without thinking about the inflation and the uh, fiat uh, debasement of the currency. Um, whereas, you know, if you, I think, you know, in, in North Asia, in, in Asia, the Asian family office, the Gulf family offices, the North American family offices, that have had kind of the succession. And the larger family offices that I've seen kind of uh, that spearheaded by like a tech billionaire, for example, you know, they're very gung-ho, right? They, they have no qualms about really going in and like, as they say, degening in the space. So I've seen opposite end of the spectrum and it's not really, I've seen it's not really the age or the demographic that determines how, uh, you know, how aggressive they, uh, they put their capital work uh, in digital assets. Yeah, there's this sentiment of, 
I want to be able to learn as much as I can about this space before bringing my you know, family's wealth into the picture, right? Do you find that some of these individuals are you know, trading and experimenting on a PA level and trying to get a sense from that? Right. That's a great question. I think on a PA level that that's kind of been, you know, sort of their entry, right? And with that experience, then they can tell their parents or the investment manager, hey, you know what? I did it. You know, the onboarding was very easy. It's very simple. Don't, you know, don't be freaked out by it. And, and so they'll kind of act as the internal champion, if you will. But as I said before, after that, so, okay, so now I own 10 Bitcoin. I own 100 Bitcoin. You know, I own 1,000 ETH. Now what? Now, now what do I do? You know, to kind of, uh, to do other stuff, to uh, maximize re my return. Um, again, I, as I mentioned, that one person or two person family office uh, manager, they won't have the time to find out, okay, the APY decreased from 10,000%. Now it's at, you know, 200%. Should I pull my money out? Right? Is, is, there, is there a hacking risk? Is there some kind of a product smart smart product, uh, smart contract risk uh, in terms of hacking? They, they don't have to, they just don't have the bandwidth. So I think as a struggle for them is really, you know, okay, so I've made kind of my uh, token allocation into digital assets. You know, I'm kind of cool. What do I do after that? You know, how do I take the next step? And uh, you know, the private bankers are not holding their hand. Their advisors are just as kind of misinformed as them. You know the bulge, the traditional bulge racket uh, advisors are not don't have the uh, knowledge to uh, kind of uh, get them down the rabbit hole and uh, get the returns they need. So it, it it's just kind of how fast are they going to you know educate themselves? The edification is is uh, really what I found um, you know to be the the time consuming uh, thing because once they start developing an understanding and confidence, then you know, it's 1%, right? 2%. Then the, the snowball effect starts to happen. I feel like there's a new crop of uh, crypto wealth planners that are going to, you know, emerge over the next, call it, you know, five years, 10 years uh, to work with this next generation to help give another perspective. If anything, it's not say do away with your traditional financial advisor, wealth planner. Because even on YouTube, you, you see kind of the influencers like, you know, what, you know, what's the hottest and latest and best return in terms of, uh, you know, yield farming, right? You see, you see people in GameFi, okay, who are the specialists, right? So they're, they're kind of the, already the opinion leaders. And as you said, you know, in a few years, you know, the bulge racket firms will have kind of, oh, he's our yield farming expert. He's our GameFi expert. That day will come, Right. Right. Well, the Goldman uh, team is about 100 people already, you know, and, and I can only imagine that team uh, growing even more, you know, globally and again, by region as well. Right. right. There, there might right. be the situation where we see, oh, wow, you know, investing in, in crypto has taken off like crazy uh, within greater Asia. And so you see a lot of the banks within Asia saying we need specialist analysts to work on our private banking teams. I mean, that would be a really, really interesting conversation. Sure. The line. Yeah. But, but I think the struggle for, for the Goldmans of the world be, is, to, is, is to remain the young, uh, retain the hot young talent. Because I don't think they'll, they'll be sticking around, right? It, it's going to be the new, the next Animokas of the world that's going to poach them and pick them up. You know, or they're, they're, they'll start their own shop. You know, well, why, why stay in Trad5 when that's not kind of the traditional hunting ground? So then if we take a look at the, the talent within Trinity Investments, 
right? And, you know, people who are looking to get into this space, but saying, hey, I don't want to start my own protocol. I don't want to start my own project, but want to come through from an investing angle. One, what do you think about when you're hiring for talent? So that's one part of the question. The other part of the question is, all right, once you've assembled this group, how are decisions made internally on what to go into? Sure. So on the trading side, uh, I've noticed, uh, you know, a lot of people that are now in uh, crypto trading, they have kind of Forex background or options trading background, right? So and, and they kind of bring that kind of trader mentality into this space. But as far as uh, kind of the broader uh, general ecosystem is, is uh, I found kind of the younger you know, recent um, graduates or students, I, I found the interns to be the most helpful. Um, and the people that, that are there, uh, you know, that, 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 are, that are digitally native, that are kind of uh, on the cutting edge in terms of understanding uh, and, uh, you know, that are able to look at a code and kind of, you know, after a few minutes, understand, you know, how different this, this is and explain that to a person like me, you know, at a level that I can understand. Because I, I found when I hire very technically uh, astute people, if they can't understand, uh, explain that to an average layman, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's kind of a disconnect. And uh, there was kind of a limitation to, uh, to uh, bringing them, them on board. So I think, I think you know, it, it depends on what you want to do in this space. You know, do you want to be, you know, in the, if you do want to be kind of just a trader, um, are, are you going to just trade with your own money? Do you, do you want to join join uh, an institution and, and trade crypto? You know, uh, do, do you, do, are you going to be more on the development side? I, I think right now, as it, as the ecosystem expands so much that for a young person going into crypto, you can't really. There's no. There's different. There's different areas where they can uh, they can pursue uh, their passion. Like we have so many or people from so many different backgrounds tuning into this show. And, and so I just want to make sure to cover the backgrounds and the experience level as well, because I think that's the, the brilliant thing about crypto is that there is no particular hierarchy in this space right now. There might be, you know, corporate levels that you've, you've climbed uh, for those companies that have, that have been around for a while, but ultimately experience isn't, 100% correlated with knowledge, right? And understanding of what's happening in this space. A lot of the times, uh, it's the people who are working your university portfolio, for example, experimenting all different types of things uh, that have the most to say about where the space is headed because they're so deep into the weeds. And the turnover there is quite high because for a young person, you know, they'll try this area, this uh, specific area of uh, crypto for maybe you know six months, eighteen months, but then they'll leave, right? So I think the turnover is very high amongst young people, as well as uh, retaining them is very difficult. You know, because as, as you, it goes back to what you said, it's like uh, you know if they if they're going to work, if a young person that's dedicated and has deep knowledge, if they're going to work at Goldman, they still need to deal with the internal politics and the internal established hierarchy. So. As we wrap up here, Hoke, I would love to understand and know what are some burning questions you have about crypto right now? The burning question I have is, does everything need to be on a blockchain, right? That's the biggest question I have. For example, if, I, if, if I'm spending three hours just enjoying playing Call of Duty, 
does Call of Duty really need to be on a blockchain? Does that need to be a blockchain-based game? I understand the benefits of, well, I can maybe make some money and maybe kind of the guns or the uniform I buy. Now I have ownership. But still, you know, a lot of people say we're still five away from a AAA rated game. So that's a burning question. To me. Does all applications in life have to be on a blockchain? You know, does that make it better? That's something that we're trying to, we're, we're, we're discovering, you know? The royalties for the artists through an NFT uh, platform, that's great for musicians, for content creators. So that definitely uh, benefits them, the blockchain, right? For, but from A to Z in everyday life, does, that, does things improve by being on a blockchain? That, that's kind of the burning question to me. Because it's, it's, it's clear that like the experience we have with DAOs, which sometimes can be a digital form of communism, where you know some people are more equal than others, <laughs> does every organization need to be decentralized? You know, for, at the sake of uh, not being able to make uh, fast uh, decisions. Mm-hmm. And another one related to DAOs is, you know, will will every VC get DAOed and replace the existing form of how you know venture capital works? No, I can see the benefits of if you're not an accredited investor, but you still want to you know, um, invest as an LP uh, with professional managers, it lowers kind of the barrier for you to invest. Mm-hmm. But like you said, you know, the decision making, the time, all of those things, you know, would that be superior to uh, the form that we have today? And it reminds me, you know, back to 2017, the question was, will ICOs replace venture capital? And it's like, okay, well, it hasn't. <laughs> uh, that was definitely a trend and probably overheated. But It's always good to question, right? How do we replace or find an alternative to the status quo? Because sometimes the status quo isn't the best way of doing things. But that's the beauty of crypto is we're constantly trying to figure out, you know, what will supplant uh, current systems? Like one of the biggest questions is how do we, um, you know, find a better monetary system, global monetary system? And that is, I think, one of the biggest questions when we, you know, talk about utility, do things need to be on a blockchain blockchaining finance and figuring out what that whole revolution might look like, I think is top of mind for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, the, the last thing I wanted to share with you was a lot of the companies, at least in Asia, they're, they're starting to deploy their corporate treasury through different yield strategies and getting more bang for their uh, buck. That's just, you know, idly sitting in a bank, not really being uh, put to work. We'll talk about the role of stablecoins in that, right? Because you mentioned how the mindset of family offices in Asia, much more pragmatic and much more flexible. I thought that word was, you know, very, very important. Why is that the case? When the um, Southeast Asian uh, family offices of uh, overseas Chinese origin, you know, they primarily had operating companies that, that a lot of them were commodity based. And for them to kind of do kind of a transnational uh, transaction, they needed maybe three or four fiat. It took several days. During that time, the exchange rate might have moved. There, there was a lot of uh, fluctuations. But, you know, ha- having uh, USDT, it, it made it so frictionless, right? It made it so practical because they could get instantaneous close. They could send the money right away. Uh, it, it just uh, was, was another accelerant in terms of the adoption of uh, how practical uh, it was just such an eye opener. Right. So, you know, the, the, the first the first way for them was, wow, Bitcoin, this is so flight and I can just 
you know, take money with me, get on my private jet. The second was kind of doing my trade finance with uh, with stable coins, you know, um, made things so much more efficient. Uh, productivity went up and now is corporate treasury. You know, instead of having my uh, my my money really not uh, being uh, put to work rigorously at a bank, you know, uh, let's let's really, you know, go for, uh, you know, uh, get kind of a, try to aim for two digit returns uh, through uh, these different yield strategies. Couldn't have said it better. The opportunity cost right now is too high. And I think once the regulation, there's more visibility and clarity in North America. I think there are some uh, treasures amongst you American corporates that uh, that are going to be uh, trying this out. I think there are some tech firms that are trying this out as well. Well, Real Vision and Crypto Unstacked listeners, if you enjoyed our conversation today and want more content with Hauk, exploring how family offices are navigating crypto, please do let us know, write us, you know, get in touch with us on Twitter, um, because this is a space that I'm personally very, very curious about and know that there are very few out there who are willing to be as open-minded and, and, and to share their time to talk about strategy, talk about the history and talk about the thesis for the space as well. So Hoke, definitely appreciate your time today on the show. And I know there are a lot of insights for our listeners to take away. Thank you very much, Leslie, for your time. This is great.